It's said that on one occasion, the Buddha was staying in Savati, a kingdom in northern India where he wandered and taught at Jetta's Grove, which is a monastery which the extremely wealthy and extremely generous benefactor of his, Anattapindika, had built for him. And one day he was sitting there with a company of monks. They were sitting meditating, and at some point the Buddha spoke up and he said, Monks, listen, pay attention, and I will speak. Which, if it was the Buddha telling me that, I would probably pay attention. And this is what the Buddha said at that time. He said, let me not revive the past, or on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly and unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day and by night, is one who has had a single excellent day. And gratified, the monks delighted in the words of the Buddha. So you've all been here practicing now. We're wrapping up our second full day of practice. And what do you think? Have you had a single excellent day? (laughs) Has it felt that way? Probably most of us would not say so, um, based on the usual standards that we measure that by. But if we think about what the Buddha considered a single excellent day, which, as we hear from this teaching, was not a day of uninterrupted peace or a day of uninterrupted bliss, which is a good thing, because that's probably not what's going on here. But if we think of it as a day of seeing each presently arisen state, everything that happens, each moment's experience, then that's what's been going on here to some extent. So whatever has happened or not happened today, whether we've liked it or not liked it, you have all been cultivating this ability, cultivating the powerful intention, the aspiration to know each moment's experience and to leave aside for this time that preoccupation with the past and with the future. So we do our best on retreat to really be here now, to show up for this moment and to be mindful, which is what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about this thing we call mindfulness, which is what we're here to do. And I also want to talk a little bit about the foundations for mindfulness, the ways in which we establish mindfulness in the mind. And for those of you that are a little bit familiar with the teachings on the four foundations of mindfulness, don't panic. You're not in for a full exposition of the four foundations of mindfulness tonight. Um, I just want to talk a little generally about mindfulness and then just touch on a few aspects of that teaching that are particularly uh, relevant and particularly helpful here in retreat. So mindfulness itself is kind of a funny thing, because on the one hand, it's just so simple and so commonplace. It seems like it ought to be really easy to understand. Just be aware of what's happening. And here we are on a nine-day retreat. This is what we've come here to do, doing this mindfulness practice. And some of us have been at it for a long time. And even if we haven't, you know, we've read something about it, we've heard heard things about it in talks or online. And it can be easy to have this assumption that we know what it is, that we know kind of a priori what being mindful is. 
But there's this irony with mindfulness that precisely because it is so simple, because it is so commonplace, that it can be difficult to really get a handle on it. We want to make it more complicated than it is. We want to make, make it more sophisticated than it is. And at first glance, it just doesn't feel special enough. It doesn't feel powerful enough to just know what's happening. Just, just that. For it to really be this essential and pivotal ingredient of awakening and transformation and enlightenment. Or we may not even really be able to pick it out, just kind of from the crowd of everything else that's going on in the mind and the body. I know for a long time in my practice, I was quite confused about what mindfulness actually was. I tended, in my case, to get it all mixed up with, with concentration and with strong concentration, which certainly can and does come along with mindfulness. This mindfulness practice does build concentration, so they often go together, especially here in retreat. And I had been trained in a style of meditation that focused a lot on coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath, which in particular, you know, doing a practice like that that's very um, focused, just on one element of experience, will build a lot of concentration. And some of you may have done that practice or similar practice and seen that effect. But so as a result of that, I tended to think that it was at those times when the mind was really still and really clear and really focused on experience and seeing lots of subtle details and very continuously, in other words, not in its normal state, (laughs) that that's when I was being mindful. That's when the practice was really happening. That's when I was doing it right. And that any other quality of experience that didn't have those elements of the focus and the stillness and the, the subtlety were not good practice. And really, I was just completely oblivious to all of the very ordinary but also very important moments of mindfulness that were happening all the time in my practice, but just not accompanied by strong concentration. So a little ways into my practice, um, actually it's embarrassing (laughs) how much practice I had done at this point. In hindsight, it seems like a little ways, but I think I had done a three-month retreat here, and I'd also gone gone and done like a two-month retreat in Burma. Um, So that was a little ways into my practice. Um, But at that point, I went to sit a short retreat with Sayada Upandita, who we talk about so much. And um, it was during that just short one-week retreat that I sat with him that I started to really actually get some inkling of what mindfulness was about. So this was at a small center in the D.C. area near where I live, um, a little Burmese center, and at that time it was just kind of a, like a little suburban house on a piece of land that somebody had donated where there were a few monks living, and sometimes they had uh, residential retreats. And somebody had donated like a double-wide trailer that they stuck out in the backyard, mm-hmm. and that was the Dharma Hall. <laughs> and it was also the women's dorms. So all day we'd sit in the hall, and then at night everybody would roll out their sleeping bags and we'd go to bed, and we had one bathroom to share. <laughs> so it really makes you appreciate IMS. Um, so um, I was doing this retreat with him, and this was, was the first time that I'd done a retreat with him. I'd met him and just had a little bit of conversation with him, but I hadn't practiced with him. And he also really emphasized mindfulness of breathing as a beginning practice and as a way of launching effort and launching mindfulness as, as a foundation for mindfulness. And I had heard from um, my teachers and my friends that had practiced with him before that he was a very demanding teacher. 
And in particular, he was very um, specific and particular about how he wanted you to report on your, med- your meditation experiences and what, how you were supposed to present it, or else you would get chewed up and spat out. So I went in for uh, my first interview with him, and I was very nervous. I went in you know, very slowly, very mindfully, um, did the formal bows to him, as you do in that um, tradition, and then started to give my report in a way that I thought I was supposed to, in the way that I thought he wanted to hear. But really coming from just a completely intellectualized place, a completely philosophical place, just thinking about what I was experiencing rather than reporting what I was actually experiencing. And Sayada probably had me pegged from the moment that I walked into the room <laughs> where I was at in my practice, um, just because the, you know, the, the meditation master... Some of these these old meditation masters uh, that have so much wisdom, there's this incredible intuition they have. They can just feel your energy. So I got a few sentences into my report, and at, and he, at that point he just held up his hand, and the translator he said something. The translator the translator said stop, <laughs> which I did. And there was a pause, and then I got the instruction through the translator to touch my nose which I had to ask him to repeat to make sure I was getting the right instruction, which I was. So, you know, what could I do? I touched my nose, you know. So there I am sitting in the living room of this little house, and um, there's Sayada there, there's a translator, there's a couple of junior monks that are observing, being trained how to teach, Um, there's other monks milling around in the background, there's uh, several lay people running in and out getting lunch ready, you know, and there I am in the middle of the room with my finger on my nose. one of the highlights of my Dharma career. (laughs) And after a moment, Sayada asked me through the translator, what do you feel? And I was really just at a complete loss. I was like, you know, I didn't say this, but I was like, what are you talking about? I feel my finger on my nose. (laughs) Um, And he could see my confusion. I was just kind of like, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) So he prompted me a bit. He said, do you feel touching? So I checked it out, put my attention on my nose, and yeah, I could feel touching. He said, do you feel warmth? So again, put the attention there. Yeah, I could feel the warmth where the contact was between the skin. And he paused, so I started to take my finger down. He said, no, no, put it back up. (laughs) And after another pause, he said, okay, what do you feel now? And so I put the attention there in this way that he was directing me, and I could start to see there's a little bit of pressure. There's a little bit of tingling. There's a little bit of the pulsation of the blood. Just some of these sensations started to come into focus, which I told him just very briefly. And he said, okay, continue to practice in this way. (laughs) And rang the bell, and that was it. And, you know, so the whole question of mindfulness was still not completely clear to me after this exchange, but it started to give me just a little bit of a clue a little bit of a sense of what I was supposed to be doing, that mindfulness is really just that simple. It's no, it's no more than that. It's just simply noticing what's happening in this present moment in whatever way it presents itself, which is our constant refrain here. You know, our job as, as meditation teachers is really quite easy. <laughs> we just tell you to be mindful. Just let the awareness notice what's happening now. Technically, mindfulness is remembering to bring the attention back to the present moment and then to keep it there. I like this description of it from Tanisaro Bhikkhu, a Western monk that comes out of the Thai tradition. He says, mindfulness means 
being able to remember where you want to keep your awareness. So it's this remembering where we want to keep our awareness. So it's what keeps reminding us, pay attention to the present moment, pay attention to the present moment, pay attention to the body, pay attention to the mind. And whenever we remember that, then we'll just naturally notice what's happening, just like with the finger on the nose. If we just remember to put our attention there, then awareness does the rest. It tells us what's happening, as long as we remember to put our attention there. There's really no extra effort involved at that point. So this is one of the places that we often fall into over-efforting, or what we sometimes call striving, pushing too hard, trying to make the mindfulness happen, trying to make the awareness happen. We don't need to do that. It happens anyway. It's automatic. All we need to do is to remember. Remember what we want to be doing. Remember what we want to be paying attention to. And again, we tend to think it just can't be that simple. There's got to be more to it, right? You know, how can enlightenment arise out of just that? There was um, a book that I read in my youth that I enjoyed a lot. The, the plot of it's not really so important, but I love the title. The title is called Expecting Someone Taller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, prem, the premise of it being, um, you know, that there's this little kind of stereotypically geeky, nerdy guy who acquires an object of great power and gets involved in this epic battle, you know, with these, these horrible, you know, larger-than-life um, bad guys. <laughs> and the bad guys are always a little bit perplexed when he turns up because they were expecting somebody taller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it tends to be that way with mindfulness. You know, we're usually expecting somebody taller. But it's really just this simple, just noticing what's happening right now. You know, we're sitting, we're hearing, we're feeling a sensation in the body. There are thoughts passing through the mind, emotions. That's really all there is to it. This is a short teaching from Tangpulu Saida, who was a, another great Burmese master of the 20th century. It's called, What Makes a Meditation? When you know that you are feeling greed, you are no longer in ignorance, but possess knowledge. If you know that you are angry and feel hatred, you are no longer in ignorance, but possess knowledge. When you know that you are confused, that knowing becomes knowledge, and it is a meditation. Even if you become aware of the feeling, I don't want to meditate, (laughs) that means you have the understanding that you don't want to meditate. Since you know that you do not want to meditate, that knowing becomes the meditation, the mindfulness and awareness that you know what you don't want to do. (laughs) It's just so simple and so clear. Whatever it is, we just know it. If we're sleepy, we know that. If we're restless, we know that. If we're racked with pain, we know that. If we're filled with aversion, if we're filled with desire, if we're totally confused and have no idea what we're doing here, (laughs) we just know that. This is the essence of mindfulness, and it's really all that we have to do here. And really, we can be mindful of anything that's going on, because mindfulness trumps everything. Pardon the expression. (laughs) (laughs) A few years ago, um, some friends of ours gave our kids this, this wonderful game that we still all like to play together. It's called Obstacles. If you have children, maybe you know of this. But it's kind of like a little mini version of Dungeons and Dragons for the under six crowd. So the premise is that you're trying to get home back to your cottage or your castle or wherever you're going, and along the way you encounter various obstacles that pop up that you need to try to get around or get past to continue. 
So first you deal out the obstacle cards, and they're things like there's a herd of sheep blocking the path, or there's a ravine where the bridge has gotten washed out, or there's a 20-foot-tall green ogre standing in the middle of the road, things like that. And then you deal out the uh, tool cards, which are the various resources that you have at your disposal to try to get by these obstacles, which may be things like a teddy bear, a harmonica, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, (laughs) things like that. And then the kids have to imagine, you know, proceeding along their path and come up with creative ways to use the tools at hand and their ingenuity to get past the obstacles that come up. So maybe, for instance, we might decide to separate the peanut butter and jelly sandwich and bounce up and down on a trampoline and stick one half of each sandwich in the ogre's eyes so that he's blind and then run through his legs, you know, something like that. Creative solutions. Um, I sometimes think it might be amusing to make up a, a, a retreat version of this game, you know, where you have like, there's the sleep, you know, paralyzing sleepiness card and the uh, maddening restlessness card and the obsessive memory card, you know, and then you, then you have your tool cards, which are like, you know, stand up or open the eyes or <laughs> maybe one day. <laughs> but what matters with the target audience for this game, obviously, is not logic, but creativity and courage and the understanding that obstacles are not deal-breakers. They're just impediments, temporary setbacks. But we found that the most valuable um, tool card by far in this game is the trampoline card, because whatever you come up against, you know, you can, if you bounce high enough, you can get over it. <laughs> and mindfulness is kind of like this. It's like the trampoline card. Whatever comes up, we can be mindful of, of it, and that will get us through it. Whatever really painful thing that's happening, whatever really blissful thing that's happening, whatever really boring thing that's happening, um, we can know it. We can be mindful of it. So mindfulness is incredibly powerful at the same time that it's incredibly simple. It's so simple that, you know, at first we can't believe that this is really all there is to it. And maybe for quite a long time in our practice, it's a leap of faith to think that this can really do the job. This very simple capacity of mind. I sometimes uh, wonder what it would be like if we, like in the middle of the night, we uh, crept down and took the schedule off of the board, you know, that has all the the sitting and walking periods and put up one that said, like, uh, five o'clock, wake up, uh, 501, pay attention. <laughs> 945, rest or further practice. Because <laughs> this is really the only instruction. You know, our job here is really to, to keep you going, to keep you at it, to, to, to lift your spirit so that you have the courage and the strength to carry on. But really, the job is very simple. Just pay attention. But it is helpful to have some framework to have some structure to what we're doing here. This is why the Buddha gave us such extensive teachings, because he knew that that instruction was not going to fly. It's just too much for us to take on, take on. You know, he could have just said to all students, okay, just pay attention, just be mindful, and wait for enlightenment. <laughs> but he didn't do that, because it's not so practical. You know, we don't know where to get a handle on that. We don't know where to start with that. So he gave us various frameworks for thinking about how to go about it thinking about how to establish mindfulness so that it can then do the work of the practice of leading us towards insight and leading us towards awakening. And in particular, he gave this one teaching called the Satipatthana Sutta, usually translated as as the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness or the Teaching on Establishing Mindfulness, things like that. 
And this teaching is really the core teaching that forms the basis for how we practice here. All of the instructions that we give here, this whole approach to what we do here is based on, you know, uh, mostly in this one teaching. So in this teaching, the Buddha breaks it down for us. He breaks down experience for us into manageable chunks, into the ones that he thought would be most helpful, most productive, where to place our attention, how to attend to what's arising, so that we can foster mindfulness, we can build a strong foundation for mindfulness. But it's important also to remember that um, these are really tools these ways of paying attention, these things to pay attention to that he talks about, that he guided us through, these are tools for arriving at mindfulness, tools for building a foundation for mindfulness, just as the, the name of the sutta says. They're not really an end in and of themselves. So if we think about a building, you know, this word foundation, um, if we're going to put up a structure or a building of some sort, we want a strong foundation. We want it to be really solid and really well built. But if we just build the foundation and then don't put anything on top of it, it's completely useless, right? We have to then proceed to, do, to take the next steps to put whatever building or structure on top of it that, that contains the space that we actually want to use. And it's the same way with the foundations of mindfulness. So they're tools. We use them to build that foundation for our practice from which we can then build on the layers of, of mindfulness and eventually insight, wisdom, and awakening that are what are actually going to serve us in our lives, what are actually going to enable us to live more skillfully, more harmoniously, more happily, more peacefully. So it is possible, and it happens, that we may spend a long time um, getting really good at, say, following the breath, (laughs) or getting really good at walking very slowly, or getting really good at scanning through the body and picking up on all the body sensations. But if we just stop there with the practice, then we really haven't, the practice hasn't served its function. We haven't taken those next steps. We haven't built those next layers. So even as we go about using these tools, putting into practice these approaches that the Buddha recommended and that we teach here, it's important to keep that perspective, that this is, this is the beginning, this is the laying of the foundation. And then there are many other aspects of the practice that unfold from there. So the four foundations are um, different aspects of what we call nama and rupa. These are the two general categories that they fall into. Um, nama, in the, the Pali word meaning, uh, comes from the same root as name, but it uh, points to concept, uh, and which points again to um, what we sometimes translate as me- mentality. It's everything that goes on in the mind, all the cognitive functions of the mind, all the feeling functions of the mind is nama. And then rupa which we sometimes translate as materiality. It's the whole physical realm, the physical realm of experience, everything that we can feel in the body. The first foundation of mindfulness describes various ways of paying attention to rupa, paying attention to the body, to our physical experience. The second and third foundations um, give us different ways of paying attention to the mind, our various mental phenomena. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is what's called dhammas, or truths, which encompasses a whole range of things, <laughs> uh, some of which we may get into in later talks. But tonight, the ones that I want to focus on are, again, other aspects of the mind, things to pay attention to in the mind. And if we take these four as a whole, then together they really include everything. 
So in this teaching, the Buddha is basically saying, just pay attention to everything. <laughs> Although he, he spells it out, he delineates what's included in everything. But really, if we take the sutta as a whole and look at its essence, again, it's just that instruction, pay attention. Pay attention to everything in the body, pay attention to everything in the mind. And here's some ways that you can go about it. So which, which pieces of, of these teachings that we choose to build our foundation from is very much up to us. In, you know, in consultation with our teachers at given times, what, which practices, which ways of paying attention to the body and the mind, which areas of paying attention to the body and the mind are going to be most supportive in building that foundation. And that may be different for each of us, maybe different at different times in our practice, different times in our lives. So this is part of the, the art and the skill of meditation is charting our path. Okay, where and how is it skillful to, to work, to place the attention at this time? So I want to talk a little bit about mindfulness of the body, its first foundation. And first and foremost, the the teaching, the guidance that the Buddha presents is how to pay attention to the breath, the breath being this very universally used object of meditation. And the breath has a couple of advantages as something to pay attention to. Uh, One, it's always happening. (laughs) So it's very reliable. It's always there. Um, Two, it's fairly neutral for most of us, not always. There are times when the breath is not neutral, there's difficulty associated with it. But for most of us, if we're healthy, the breath is not something we get too excited about either one way or the other. So it makes a very good object of meditation. And in general, anything that fulfills these qualifications of being uh, reliable and neutral makes a pretty good way to steady the attention. So that's why just the sensation of sitting or listening to sounds, these also can be things that fit into this category of a way of anchoring the attention when the mind is scattered or we're not sure what to do with it. And the instructions that the Buddha gives for how to pay attention to the breath are not just follow the breath. Instead, he says, this is the classical teaching that he gives, um, mindful one breathes in and mindful one breathes out. Thinking, I breathe in long, one understands when they are breathing in long. Thinking, I breathe out long, one understands when they are breathing out long. Or thinking, I breathe in short, one understands that they are breathing in short. Or thinking, I breathe out short, one understands that they are breathing out short. So it's this kind of interesting instruction. Um, but if we, if we think about it, it really points to tuning into the dynamics of the breath. So not just kind of following the breath in a superficial way, but really tune into how is it beginning? How is it progressing? What's the quality of it? Sometimes we talk about noticing whether it's smooth or choppy, you know, whether they're deep breaths or shallow breaths. So not noticing the breath in a superficial way, but really ter- attending to, to a way, in a way that we're picking up the nuances, we're picking up the details. He also gives this um, analogy just as a skilled woodturner. You know, somebody, think about somebody who's maybe making table legs or chair legs that have this kind of elaborate you know, beautiful profile. Just as a skilled woodturner, turning long understands I turn long. <laughs> or turning short understands I tor- turn short. So there's this kind of like craftsperson-like, you know, aesthetic to, to this approach to the breath, really uh, understanding, okay, now it's going like this, and now it's going like that, and now it's going like this, and now it's going like that. Really surfing on those waves of the, of the breath. And it's also interesting that this instruction is two-pronged. So um, noticing, for example, when we're breathing in long, 
and then also knowing that we're breathing in long. This is an important refinement of the instruction. So it's not just about being in the present moment with the breath. It's about knowing what's happening in the present moment. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But I wanted to mention another aspect of paying attention to the body, which is sometimes called um, mindfulness of the great elements, which is a way of understanding sensation in the body, the direct experience of sensation in the body. And in the Buddha's time, and still in some uh, wisdom traditions today, we talk about um, four dimensions to physical experience, which classically were called uh, earth, water, fire, and air, which may seem like kind of an archaic way of describing the body. Um, but really, if we think about it in modern terms, the, the quality of earth refers to really the mass of the body or the experience of the mass of the body. So this is things like the, the weight of the body, heaviness or lightness, the sense of solidity of the body. These are all aspects of the experience of the earth element in the body. When we feel, there may be times when we feel really heavy, you know, like we're just, we can't get up or the body's so heavy. That's the earth element we're experiencing. Or there may be times when we feel almost like we're lifting up off the cushion or even levitating. That's also the earth element of the body, the lightness aspect of it. Uh, the element of water has to do with the cohesion of, our, of the sensations in the body. Are they really, really concentrated and pinpoint, pointed in a small area, or are they more diffuse and spread out? That's the water element. Uh, the element of fire is fairly easy to understand. This is the dimension of temperature. So anything on the spectrum from burning heat to freezing cold and anywhere in between, when we notice that, we're noticing the fire element. And then finally, there's the element of air, which is a way of capturing the essence of of all the movement that happens within the body. So it may be, uh, again, on the spectrum, it may be trembling, throbbing, um, any of those types of sensations where there's a lot of movement, undulating, flowing, or at the other end of the spectrum, it may be stiffness in a sense that there's no movement. So that's the the air element. So what this teaching is doing, really, (laughs) don't want to get too bogged down in all of that. We can talk more about that in groups, but it's really just pointing us to a direct experience of what we're actually feeling in the body. And in particular, pointing us to to getting beyond or beneath whatever our concept is of of what's happening in the body or what the body is. So instead of getting hung up on, oh, there's this horrible pain in my knee, can we drop down to the level, level where we're feeling burning, pressure, tightness, stabbing, you know, throbbing, whatever it might be, to really uh, connect with that level of what does it actually feel like? What is the real experience in the body? So just as Kamala said in the, in the walking instructions, maybe if we're um, using the noting technique, say as we're walking, we may be noting stepping, lifting, moving, placing, whatever it is that we're, we're noting, but then we want to be actually dropping into the body and feeling in, in essence, these elements, feeling the pressure, feeling the movement, feeling the trembling, feeling the temperature, if we feel that. So both this mindfulness of the breath uh, instructions and the mindfulness of the elements instructions, these are pointing us towards connecting with the actual sensations in the body and then noticing their dynamics and knowing that we're noticing those things. So this is a really important ingredient that we sometimes get confused about. Because we hear this a lot in books about mindfulness and talks about mindfulness. Just be in the moment, right? Just be here now, be in the now, 
be with things as they are, all this sort of thing. Don't get lost in the past or the future. So it's easy to get the idea that mindfulness is about, okay, let me just be in the present moment. And this is a little tricky because all of that is an aspect of mindfulness. We have to be here in the present moment to be mindful. But that's only part of the picture. So if we think about young children, or animals for that matter, if you've had a chance to to spend some time around them, they're really in the present moment, literally, because they, they haven't developed the cognitive ability yet to conceptualize past and future. Um, and that's one of the reasons it's so delightful to be around children and animals when conditions are good, when they're feeling pleasure, because they're completely in the moment with that. And there's this kind of beautiful joy in that experience. But then we also get to see the flip side when they're <laughs> stuck in an experience that is not pleasant, that's uncomfortable. They're really, um, there's a kind of great vulnerability in that situation just because they are in the moment, but there's not an understanding of what's happening in the moment. They're defenseless. They can't protect themselves from the, the horror of, the, of something unpleasant. Um, they get really upset <laughs> because there's not the understanding there to cope. They don't have coping mechanisms yet. So mindfulness is, is about more than just being in the present moment. It's not that we want to reduce ourselves or regress somehow back to a childlike or infantile state or a more primitive state. So when something happens uh, that's unpleasant for a child and there's not the understanding there, then we see what happens. Um, they lash out, they try to push away whatever's upsetting them, or they try to run away, get away from it, or they try to get hold of something that's pleasant to kind of block out the unpleasant feeling, someplace to find comfort, something to distract them. And unless something happens to change our course as we go through our lives, our basic coping mechanisms don't really change much. <laughs> this is pretty much how we go through our lives. Something unpleasant happens, we try to push it away, lash out at it, or we try to get away from it, or we try to replace it with something else. You know, things really don't change much from the time that we're two. We get more sophisticated, we get more complicated, you know, we get more powerful as we go through our lives. But the basic coping mechanism doesn't really change much unless something comes along our path, like this practice, like these teachings, that gives us an inkling that there might be a more effective way to deal with the difficulties in life. So just being in the present moment by itself is not enough. We need to know what's happening in the present moment and really register it, really take it in. All four of us have been through the experience of being, um, you know, doing this very formal interviewing with our Burmese teachers and being quizzed on all sorts of random uh, happenings of the day. So the usual format for, for reporting to one of the Burmese teachers in this tradition is you go in, you bow, you talk about your sitting meditation, and in particular how you're noticing the breath to begin. You talk about your walking meditation, and then you talk about what they call general activities, which is just everything else in between. So that's kind of the normal format for um, a traditional interview. But then sometimes you'll get just these random questions. So you may go, be going along giving your report, and all of a sudden your teacher asks you, what did you notice while you were brushing your teeth this morning? <laughs> Or what did you notice while you were walking up the stairs to breakfast? Or what did you notice while you were um, sitting in the Dharma hall waiting for the talk to start? Or my particular favorite, um, you know, did you fall asleep on an in-breath or an (laughs) (laughs) out-breath? 
And if we're in the moment, you know, if, the, if we're just kind of floating along and we're in the moment, but we're not really registering what's happening in the moment, then, you know, duh, 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 you know what can you say? <laughs> you, weren't really, you weren't really taking it in. But if we're in the present moment and also registering, taking in what's actually happening in the present moment, then we can say something about those experiences. There'll be some memory of what was happening. So if we're in there in the moment with brushing our teeth, then we feel the pressure of the brush. We feel the rubbing of the bristles, the temperature of the water, the flavor of the toothpaste. So all of those elements and their dynamics that are included in these first instructions, we take all that in and we register, okay, this is happening and I know that it's happening. So going back to that teaching from Tongpulu Sayada, as soon as we know what's happening in the present moment, we're meditating. That's all there is to it. The Buddha also talks about um, a less uh, focused type of meditation. So in the instructions on uh, attending to the body, he talks about mindfulness of the body postures and what's called clear comprehension, which is really just a very ordinary way of staying aware of what we're doing, which is really vital to practice. So he says, uh, when he is going, uh, one understands I am going. When one is standing, one understands I am standing. When one is sitting, one understands I am sitting. When one is lying down, they understand I am lying down. So just being aware in, this, in a more holistic way. And sometimes we do this in practice, very often without even thinking about it. We, we're not really focused in on, a, on you know, really the details of a particular sensation or the dynamics of it, but we're just kind of sitting in the body and we're just aware of sitting, kind of in, in a holistic way, the whole experience of sitting. Here's the body, it's in this particular position, there's an array of sensations within it, uh, sounds coming in, um, it's shifting around, changing, so it's a more general way of being in the body. So this is also a helpful way to attend to the body at times. Or at other times, we may shift into um, really a very ordinary way of relating to the body through clear comprehension, which the Buddha describes in this way, that in, in going forwards and going backwards, in looking straight on and in looking away, in bending and in stretching, in putting on clothes and carrying objects, in eating, drinking, chewing, and savoring, in walking and standing and sitting and falling asleep, in speaking and in keeping silence, one cultivates mindfulness with clear comprehension. And there's actually, um, in some of the teachings from, our, from Mahasi Sayada, kind of the grandfather of this tradition, you find very extensive lists <laughs> of everything to notice. The touching the fork, the lifting the glass, the touching the shirt, the putting down the book, you know, just these exhaustive list, lists of, you know, basically just pay attention to everything that you do. Not in, again, in a very detailed or nuanced or subtle way, but just in a very simple, ordinary way, just knowing what we're doing. This is a very... Um, useful life skill and very useful here on retreat. It basically, this, this type of mindfulness connects all the dots. So it connects the, time, the, the times in between when we're doing the formal sitting and the formal walking, all of those in-between times so that we don't lose the thread, we don't lose the continuity of awareness. You know, it's not necessary to creep around every moment of the day here um, feeling very detailed, very, you know, precise <laughs> sensations of everything that's happening. There, there's times for doing that, you know, when we're here in the hall, when we're doing the formal walking at times. But then the rest of the time, it's perfectly okay to move about the center, 
do the things that we have to do, you know, eat, use the bathroom, go to our rooms, do whatever we have to do there, keeping our mindfulness going in just this very light way, this very easy way. Okay, now I'm walking, now I'm opening the door, now I'm, you know, putting my thing on the bed or whatever we're doing, in just this very ordinary way. I I believe it was uh, Kamala's teacher Manindra that said, if a yogi just sits and knows that they are sitting, the whole of the Dharma will unfold. (laughs) So again, this is a case of, it's really hard to believe that just this is enough, but it really is. It's really uh, an incredible achievement just simply to stay in the present moment, even if we're not doing anything that seems particularly profound there, because the other alternative is being lost in thought, right? (laughs) So as long as we're not lost in thought, we're doing okay. Uh, one of my Burmese teachers said, as long as a yogi is noticing anything that is true in the present moment, their practice will progress. And this has really given me a lot of comfort over the years, is that we don't need to be noticing anything particularly profound or anything particularly subtle. Do I know something in the present moment that's actually happening? Like, for example, I'm sitting here. <laughs> or like, for example, I'm in incredible pain. You know, if we just know that, we're doing like, okay, we're on track. So there are these different frames of reference that come out of these teachings for how we attend to the body. At times we may be kind of in close-up mode. If you think about a camera, sometimes we focus really in close and we take in all the details, all the nuances in a very precise, very detailed way. Other times we may open up to a wide angle. We're feeling the experiences more holistically. We're still present, but we're attending to them in a different way. Not so detailed, not so subtle, just more, uh, more of an overall impression of what's going on. And then at other times, we may shift into, uh, you know, what we think of a standard mode, just regular camera mode, where we just t- are taking snapshots of, okay, sitting, walking, eating, drinking, just what are we doing in the moment in a very regular way. And, you know, so we may see this in our practice just during one sitting period. We may shift back and forth between these different ways of, of framing what's happening. So maybe we start off in a sitting, we've got a lot of uh, energy, having just come in from whatever we we're doing, um, the mind is ready to go. And so that, at that time, we may really zoom in close to the breath or maybe to the pain in the body that's been bugging us. And we have the energy at that point to really take in a lot of the detail, take in a lot of the nuance. But then after a while, we start to get fatigued, right? That gets hard. Hanging out with the, the pain and that very um, close-up focus can become overwhelming after a while. So we zoom out a little bit. We let the pain be within a bigger container, just taking in the whole body, taking in sounds, not focusing in so much on the pain, but just taking in the, the whole picture and letting it be there within the frame. Then at some point, the pain may start to scream at us so bad <laughs> that it really takes over the whole picture. So then maybe we open the eyes, maybe we stand up, and we just notice in a very ordinary way, here I am. I'm sitting, I'm standing. I'm in the meditation hall at IMS. <laughs> you know, so-and-so is over there doing that. You know, it's day, it's night. And just, just keep the, the thread going in just a very ordinary way. And perhaps as we do that, because we're making that effort to stay present, at some point we notice, I hate this experience. <laughs> This is an awful experience. And we get a read on this aversion that was there, this unpleasantness that was there that we hadn't picked up on. You know, It had been the elephant in the room. 
So all sorts of things can emerge just out of that space that we leave through clear comprehension. And that can open up a whole new dimension of the experience, which is what I want to talk about next, a little bit of the Buddha's instructions on how to attend to the mind and everything that goes on in the mind. The first thing that he talked about in relation to paying attention to the mind was um, what we call feeling. Um, the Pali word is, is vedana, which is really hard to translate into English. So it's not feeling in the sense of, uh, you know, feelings. It's, it's not that kind of feelings. <laughs> it's really um, a word for the pleasure pain spectrum, which, you know, I find it so interesting that in English we don't even have a word for this. It's like such a fundamental part of our experience that every moment there's, there's some perception of the pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality somewhere in the middle of an experience. It's going to be really, atten- really interesting to pay attention to. There may be times when we just tune into this aspect of experience. Like, okay, now I feel good, now I feel bad, now I feel eh, nothing much, you know. It can be really interesting to see how that flip-flops around. That is a whole um, incredibly important dimension of our lives. We are totally programmed as biological organisms to be driven <laughs> by Vedana, by, by that pleasure-pain spectrum. You know, we see it with uh, the simplest organisms. You, you, you drop that drop of uh, vinegar into the Petri dish and they all run for the sides. <laughs> or you drop the, the grain of, of sugar in it and they all pounce on it. So, so every form of life has this so programmed into it and we're no different, that we are totally driven by pleasure and pain. And most of the time, uh, often, you know, most of the time here, and certainly in our ordinary lives until we come to practice, we are driven by Vedana. You know, we react to pain in certain habitual ways. We react to pleasure in certain habitual ways. And unless or until we start to become aware of that, we really have very few choices in how we live our lives because we're being driven by these invisible forces that have remained invisible, but which we have a chance here to really bring to light. What does pleasantness feel like? What is that experience of pleasantness? What reactions does it cause in the mind? What reactions does it cause in the body? What is that experience of unpleasantness? Oh, it's actually something different from the, the sensations in the body. The sensations in the body are just what they are. But then there's this unpleasant feeling that's really unpleasant. <laughs> you know, so we can start through attending to the mind this way, tuning into this dimension of it to pick up on. There's this whole force op- operating in the mind all the time, which is in- extremely powerful and important in our lives. And the instructions that the Buddha gave for, for awareness, uh, for mindfulness of, of Vedana, of pleasure and pain, is very similar to his instructions for the body. So recognize when it's happening, recognize which of these feelings, what type of feeling is, is present, and know that it's happening. So when one experiences a pleasant feeling, one knows that a pleasant feeling is happening. When one experiences an unpleasant feeling, one knows that an unpleasant feeling is happening. When one experiences a neutral feeling, one knows that a neutral feeling is happening, which is really a radically different way of relating to pleasure and pain from what we're habituated to. Our, you know, our habitual response, which we come up against over and over and over again on retreat, is when we become aware of an unpleasant feeling, we start trying to figure out how to get rid of it. <laughs> when we run into a pleasant feeling, we start trying to figure out how to hang on to it. When we run into a neutral feeling, we just space out. Right? This is how we're all conditioned. So just simply being able to tune in to these, uh, to these sensations, to these impressions of experience, 
in a, in a non-reactive way, where we're not just knee-jerk acting out whatever our conditioning is around them, really can bring a lot of insight, a lot of change. Another um, foundation of mindfulness, the third foundation of mindfulness, is what the Buddha called uh, chitta. And you may hear us drop this term around here if you're not familiar with it. We talk about chitta which is uh, meditating on this third foundation of uh, mindfulness, contemplation of the mind. It's sometimes called chitta being the mind, the quality of the mind. So contemplation of the mind, of chitta, when we talk about that, this is about becoming sensitive to the quality of the mind. So recognizing what mental states, as we call them, or or we could call them emotions, what mental states are coloring the mind, giving it a particular flavor, giving it a particular mood, coloring how we perceive other phenomena. So when we're paying attention to to chitta, to the quality of the mind, um, and we talk about this shift often here, we, we shift away from paying attention maybe to what's happening to how the mind is relating to it. So there's that pain in the knee, it's unpleasant. Those are the first two foundations of mindfulness. The next question that comes along in the third foundation is how does the mind feel about it? It likes it, it doesn't like it. It's sad, it's happy, you know, it's, it's, it's frightened, it's uh, lusting, <laughs> whatever it might be. It's starting to tune into all those colorations of the mind. Or maybe we come out of some train of thought you know, constantly here we're waking up out of thought, constantly we're wandering into thought, and then constantly we're waking up uh, from thinking. And it's that moment of waking up from thinking that's really the magic moment. The moments when we're lost in thought, not much we can do about those. But then when we wake up, what do we do? That's really the, the powerful moment. So we may be able to, to shift the attention at that time from, you know, whatever the story was about, whatever it was telling us, and look back at the mind itself and see what's the quality of the mind. Oh, there was fear driving that thought. There was longing driving that thought. There was boredom driving that thought. There was anger driving that thought. So there's a way when we come out of thinking, we might just be able to turn the mind a little bit and just get a glimpse of what the, the chitta, what the quality of the mind is, which again can give us a lot of information and the point here, you know, just as with everything in this practice, is not to um, get over the emotion, to change the emotion, to, to try to avoid it, but just to be clear and see what's going on. Okay, this mental state is present. This emotion is happening. To see uh, what they are, to see how they're changing, how they evolve. Now there's this emotion, and now it's become this one, and now this one. So we get to see the mental states come, the mental states go. They're very... Um, shifting. They're constantly in flux. It's easy to get the impression that if we're really being mindful, then we should feel calm, right? We, should, we shouldn't be feeling agitated and cranky like we are if we were really being mindful. Because that's what we're all here for, right? And we're all here for a little peace and calm. And we hear about how practicing mindfulness is the path to peace. So if we're doing this right, we should feel more peaceful, Right? <laughs> If we're being mindful, um, then we should feel better than we do. But this is not actually how it works. You know, peacefulness is not the measure of good practice. Uh, calm is not the measure of good practice. Easy is not the measure of good practice. 
And you, you all know this by now, even if this is your very first retreat, that this is not how it works. Mindfulness does not lead uh, directly to peace and calm. Peace and calm is peace and calm. It's a certain mental state that we may also notice at times. Um, and it's very nice. There's nothing wrong with peace and calm. It's great when we can get it. Um, it arises due to causes and conditions, one of which is mindfulness. So it's not unrelated to mindfulness. But they're not joined at the hip. And we all know this by now that it's possible to be very calm and peaceful, so calm and peaceful that we find our head nodding <laughs> and with the eyes drooping and totally spacing out into la-la land, and we're completely unmindful. And on the other hand, it's possible to be very mindful, very present with what's happening, but there's no sense of peace or calm at all. So, these, so peace and calm and mindfulness may come together, but they don't necessarily. So our job is not to try to change our mental state, but again, just to notice it, just to register, okay, this is what's happening. It's like this. The last foundation of mindfulness, the foundation of dhammas or truths, uh, includes many things, but I want to focus on just two tonight, which we might call the dark and the light sides of the force, (laughs) which we've been hearing a lot about lately. So the dark side is the side that leads to suffering, what we usually call here the five hindrances. And the light side is the side that leads to peace, what we call the the factors of enlightenment, the seven factors of enlightenment. Or or maybe a less loaded way to think of it is that the, the hindrances, we call them that because they hinder our ability to be mindful, like the 20 foot green ogre. They make it more difficult to pay attention. And the enlightenment factors support our ability to be mindful. They, they make it easier to be present, um, like the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And usually at this point in the retreat, we are quite aware of the hindering states of mind. Uh, has anybody not seen these yet? <laughs> so these are the, the energetic imbalances that we all know and love so well. Um, so having too much energy or having too little energy. Um, lethargy or restlessness. There also are old habits of craving and aversion, being uh, reacting, reacting to things that come up in the body, reacting to things that come up in the mind, either with, with clinging or with pushing away, which can lead to a lot of obsessive thinking. And then there's the, the hindrance of doubt, which Kamala spoke a little bit about, that unsettled feeling that many of you are reporting, and it's very natural at this point of, what am I doing here? <laughs> What is this about? You know, can I do this? Uh, is this the right path for me? Is this really going to be a, of any benefit? Have I wasted, you know, nine days of my life? You know, all this kind of thing, um, which is different from discernment. We often talk about the difference between those. Discernment is this comes from a place of wisdom, really um, clearly evaluating. You know, what am I doing with my life? What's my aspiration? What's my intention here? Um, the quality of doubt is that it's endless. This is kind of the defining aspect of doubt. We go round and round, round and round, thinking and pondering, wondering and doubting, and there's no way to reach a resolution. So we get into this kind of holding pattern where we're circling around and around whatever it is we're doubting, and the the irony of it is that we can't actually then proceed with the practice, which is what would answer our questions, (laughs) is just doing what we're here to do. That's what will resolve those doubts. Either we'll find it works or we'll find it doesn't. So again, the instructions around these difficult states, just notice them. Coming back again to that teaching from Tong Pulo, 
as soon as we know that we're consumed by craving, we're mindful, we're meditating. As soon as we know we're consumed by aversion, as soon as we know we're consumed by sleepiness, as soon as we know we're consumed by restlessness, as soon as we realize that we're, we're stuck in doubt, as soon as we realize that these difficult states are present, then mindfulness is activated and we can jump over the ogre. <laughs> On the flip side, if we're persistent in our practice, um, you know, if we can just hang in there, then over time uh, we will get to see more and more of the light side of the forces, more and more of the beautiful qualities of mind that actually um, are supportive uh, in our practice and just wonderful in and of themselves. So these are first just mindfulness itself, then investigation which is an interesting word because it doesn't mean thinking about what's happening or analyzing what's happening, but it's more the sense of drawing near or sinking into experience. It's a, it's a feeling investigation, feeling more fully. And there's the quality of energy, this uplifting quality in the mind that makes the mind bright and uh, ready to be mindful. There's joy which is wonderful when it arises, the sense of sometimes we just get into the zone, you know, maybe we're walking or eating lunch or something, and we just kind of sink in, and there's this real delight just in being in contact with the present moment, even if it's nothing very remarkable. This is this kind of spiritual joy. There's calm, this one that we crave so much here on retreat, which does happen at times. If we pay attention, there's times when everything just settles down. May seem like nothing's happening, but maybe after it comes and goes a few times, we start to notice, oh, there's actually tranquility. <laughs> That's what's actually happening. Fancy that. Not so familiar with that. There's concentration when the mind does get very stable and steady and is able to really focus in on things and pick up on details. And there's equanimity, which is this wonderful quality of being really balanced in the mind, non reactive, very peaceful, just going with the flow. So little by little, we also become aware and mindful of these beautiful qualities. And we really want to be aware of them, just as much as with the hindering qualities. It's through mindfulness of the hindrances that we deprogram them, that we, we starve them, we cut off their, their fuel supply. And it's through mindfulness of the enlightenment factors that we feed them and nurture them. It's by noticing them, them that they, get, they grow stronger, even though it may not always feel like that's what's happening. There was a really interesting study I read a little while ago um, that was done in Toronto. And what they did was they did, um, you know, there's all this functional MRI study of meditators going on right now. And they did brain scans on two groups of meditators. So there was one group um, that had just finished an eight-week introductory course. So we're talking about eight weekly meditation classes these people have done. And then there's uh, another group that are complete beginners. They have no meditation experience. They've just gotten a little bit of basic instructions when they arrive to do the study. And the researchers looked at two areas of the brain in particular. They looked at the central zone of the brain, kind of the old part of the brain, that's responsible for direct experience, for non-intellectual experience. And then they looked at the, the surface zone, you know, around the outside of the brain, the newer part, which is responsible for all of our interpreting and story-making around experience. And the two zones are very closely linked. So we're really wired <laughs> to do all that thinking that we do here. You know, it doesn't just happen for no reason. We're programmed to function that way. 
we're programmed to um, storyfy, to create stories around all of our direct experience. So in most people, those two zones of the brain, they, they will light up together. You know, when we're having a direct experience, immediately we think about it. And so both zones of the brain are activated basically at the same time. So um, they put these two groups of uh, meditators into the MRI and had them try to meditate. So people that had just been given instructions just then and people that had had an eight-week introductory course. And um, then they brought them out and they asked uh, everybody in the study, how did it go? And both groups reported the same thing. Everybody, whether they'd taken the eight-week course or not, said, my mind was all over the place. I was completely unable to concentrate. Just total monkey mind. I wasn't focused at all. Um, But the scans of the people that had had the eight-week course told a different story. (laughs) They were actually different from the people that had just gotten the meditation instructions. They showed less activity in the story-making part of the brain compared with the, the control group. So I love the study. <laughs> I love the results of the study because this is really how um, uh, just subjectively we experience the meditation pro- um, pro- uh, retreat so often is so much of the time we really feel like nothing is happening. <laughs> but it, it is. It's going on there. It's going on under the surface, out of view most of the time until it's ready to, to reveal itself to us. So we can take uh, heart from, from these kinds of studies and just also from, from the witness of generations of people that have done this practice, even when it feels like nothing's happening. It really is. Our teacher Sayada Upandita has also said, every moment of mindfulness brings a yogi one moment closer to full enlightenment, whether they like it or not. <laughs> if you do this practice, it only leads in one direction, whether you believe it or not. <laughs> So I just want to end um, with a verse that's actually from the opening to the Satipatthana Sutta, very famous verse that the Buddha said that this is the only way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, and for the attainment of peace, namely mindfulness. So let's sit for a moment. So we have a little bit of time for walking now. And if you still have a little bit of energy, I encourage you to, to come back for the evening chanting and what I promise will be just a very short sit to, to wrap up the day. <laughs> 